0: Hello, welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For every program, we look for new books in religious studies, and we chat with the author of those books. For this program, I have the pleasure of speaking with Brent Nongri about his great new book, Before Religion, A History of a Modern Concept, which was published with Yale University Press in 2013. We all know that religion is a universal feature of human history, right? Well, maybe not. In Before Religion, Brent Nongri argues that throughout time people have conceptualized themselves in various ways, but did not classify what they were doing as religious. As someone who worked in the Antique Period, Nongri found it peculiar to find translations of ancient works referring to religion. In the first half of the book, he examines how and why terms like the Latin religio, or the Arabic word deen are repeatedly rendered as religion in translations. He also draws our attention to various births of the modern conception of religion, such as the Maccabean Revolt or the writings of Eusebius. Ultimately, he concludes this phenomenon could be more usefully described in other terms. Nogri explains that in the pre-modern era, Christians generally classified others as bad Christians or heathens, and not as other religious traditions. The second half of the book contends that religion as an idea has a history, and the way we generally understand it today can be traced back to a number of historical events. Nogri points to three moments as instrumental in a public understanding of religion as a universal, private, non-political affair. He contends that our modern understanding of religion is a product of Christian disunity following the Reformation, increasing colonial encounters with indigenous people, and the formation of nation-states. He provides ample evidence for these claims through a number of vignettes tracing this transformation over time. With these complex issues surrounding the concept of religion, we might feel at a loss of what we should be doing in religious studies. Nabri offers some useful approaches to how we can examine social activities and ideas in the context of this loaded term. In our conversation, we discuss definitions, Wilfred Cantwell-Smith, Manichaeans, Muhammad, John of Damascus, John Locke, the early Muslim community, the world religions model, the invention of Mesopotamian religion. Issues of translation, Talal Asad, and many, many other things. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks again for listening. Hello. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Brett Nongbri about his book Before Religion: A History of a Modern Concept, which was published with Yale University Press in 2013.
1: How you doing, Brett? I'm good. Thanks.
0: Yeah. Thanks for talking with us. Uh, this is this is a really great book. Uh, I think everyone in the field of religious studies should should read this book. Um, and what I really appreciate about this book is you you've made it very accessible and I think this is a book that uh, people can use in, in in introductory classes. I think it's something that's uh, very well researched uh, but very well communicated as well and I think it's it's readable by by people of all levels so I, I hope many people will will buy your book and uh, bring you great fortune. <laughs> um,
1: I hope so, too. <laughs> uh,
0: before you, uh, we, we kind of dive into the book, um, I was hoping you could kind of give us a little bit of background about how you got interested in the study of religion, perhaps people that might have been influential uh, for you and your work, um, or any kind of formative moments in your, your kind of training here.
1: Uh, Sure. Um, I first got interested in the study of religion when uh, I was an undergraduate at the University of Texas at Austin. I kind of stumbled into a course on early Christianity, and I was just fascinated by it. You know, I didn't know much about the Bible or the New Testament, and uh, being exposed to The ability to use those sources to actually do history was something that uh, kind of blew my mind at the time. So I got really interested in uh, early Christian studies, and so I started to learn Greek and really dug into that and ended up uh, going to graduate school um, to study that. Uh, First for a a master's at uh, Yale Divinity School and then on to a Ph.D. uh, at Yale University in the Religious Studies Department. And while I was there, I I kept on working on early Christian materials. Uh, I focused in on the Apostle Paul. And it's at that point that I really started to run into problems uh, with the concept of religion. Um, When I was studying Paul, one of the main debates that goes on among New Testament scholars when talking about Paul is the question of Paul and Judaism, which became very bizarre for me because pretty much everyone will uh, admit and even celebrate the fact that Paul is Jewish. Uh, Everyone agrees on this. Paul was not a Christian, Paul was Jewish. Um, But then the next step in that uh, discussion is to then compare Paul's religion with the religion of Judaism. Which, the more I struggled with it, the more strange it seemed to me. Why would we all say Paul is a Jew, but then think that he had a uh, quote-unquote religion that was different from that of other Jews? And so uh, my probing of the concept of religion really emerged out of uh, this set of problems I had with the ancient evidence, Paul and his letters, Was this happening in, in courses that you were doing or was this during
0: your dissertation research? Uh,
1: it started out in courses, um, writing term papers, just trying to do exegesis of, uh, of the letters and not being able to, um, understand why this discussion was happening. Um, and then as I, uh, moved through coursework, I was also doing courses in, uh, method and theory. Um, there was a seminar that was just getting started, uh, when I was a graduate student at Yale, uh, a course taught by, uh, Ludger Vifus. And it was an amazing class. It was, uh, sort of major thinkers in, um, the study of religion, but, uh, that was where I was introduced to the work of uh, Wilfred Cantwell-Smith, uh, Talal Assad, and people who had been uh, challenging the concept of religion more from a modern standpoint. And so I was coming at it from the ancient studies, uh, and so it was a really nice meeting in the middle for me. Brent, I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about
0: the structuring of a book like this, uh, because you're you're covering a uh, a very long period of time, you're covering uh, a number of different uh, social contexts, and you you explicitly state in the book, uh, I think at least two times, maybe maybe more, that there there could have been a di- you could have written a different book. Um, so I'm I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about. And possibly there's, this might be going from dissertation to a book. Um, how how did you structure this book? How did you come up with the the kind of the map for what you're going to be doing and and piecing these kind of uh, different different stories together?
1: Uh, yeah, the, the the book in a way does come out of the the dissertation. My my dissertation ended up being um, wrestling with this problem from the perspective of uh, Paul's letters. Dissertation was called Paul without religion. And uh, the first half of it was a sort of genealogy of the concept of religion, and then the second half was an attempt to read Paul's letters uh, without invoking that concept. Um, and when uh, I finished that as a dissertation and started thinking about um, shopping it around for a book project, it became pretty clear to me that uh, that first part of the dissertation, the, the genealogy, um, needed to be more robust, and it just sort of became its own study. Uh, and as for the structure, it, it's interesting. I, I really do think there are lots of different ways to narrate a history of the concept of religion. Uh, the particular way that I chose. Um, anyone who's also read Wilford Cantwell Smith's book uh, will definitely see the influence there. I, I I learned a lot from Smith, uh, but I also, um, as I write, I think in the introduction, became uncomfortable with uh, the way that Smith used faith as a kind of replacement term for religion. And so what I tried to do was, from having looked at a really broad swath of literature from a number of different disciplines, um, wrestling with this category, I looked for places where people asserted that, uh, this is the beginning of religion. So for instance, with, uh, early Islam, you often find that claim made that, uh, this is, uh, the first world religion or something like that, or the, uh, the Manichaeans, you find similar claims. And so I, I looked for those um, historical episodes and really tried to scrutinize them and see if uh, if those claims held up. And that provided a nice kind of temporal structure for the narrative as well. Uh, because you know you can look at these different historical episodes, the writings of Cicero, the writings of Eusebius, uh, the Manichaean materials. Um, the Quran and other early Muslim literature, and I think that that uh, that set up a good narrative structure. Now, in the the introduction,
0: you um, you you talk about Smith a lot, and kind of this became uh, somewhat of a, a spark for you, right? And I guess I should say that the kind of the main context of the book is that you're contesting this idea that religion is a universal feature of human history um, and especially in uh, antiquity. And so Talal Assad's critique becomes very important for you in, in challenging Smith. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you could – you talk a little bit about um, you know how, how people have come to use the term religion and why this, this becomes so problematic for you. Why, why did you feel you had to, to write this book I guess?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, the idea that religion—I uh, mean, to us, living in the modern world, the idea that religion is a kind of separate sphere from politics, economics, law, science, uh, that's just kind of part of our cultural common sense now. Um, but when we look back at the ancient world, uh, the gods were involved in— everything pretty much. Um, if you want to declare a war, you consult the gods first. If you want to keep your money safe, you put it in a temple. Uh, there are all these interactions that involve the gods in antiquity, uh, these social spaces where the modern world, uh, excludes gods from those areas. And so that being the case, uh, I really wondered, you know, how does talking about an ancient religion make sense? How does it help us uh, think about the ancient world, or does it help us think about the ancient world? And the more I worked with it, the more I became convinced that it's really not that helpful. Uh, So I, in that sense, I was um, persuaded by Wilfred Cantwell Smith, Um, but Cantwell Smith had the Shift the thrust of his critique of the concept of religion was that uh, it has become reified. That's a word he uses over and over again. That it, uh, religion went from being a kind of internal feeling to being reified into a system. And that part of his critique I find much less convincing. This idea that reification is the the problem because, you know, ancient people had uh, concepts, they had systematic ideas, they just seem not to have isolated religion as as one of these. And so I thought it was really important to spell this out. Uh, I mean, part of the the reason for writing the book is when I was a graduate student, I was really, I would have loved to have this kind of material brought together. And so I'm really happy to hear you say that uh, you think the book can work in, in classroom settings because uh, I really, I kind of hoped that that would be one of the outcomes of this was that the book would uh, maybe sit alongside of a more typical world religions textbook and kind of be a conversation partner for it.
0: Yeah. Let's get Yale to, to put it in paperback. <laughs> It's available in Kindle. <laughs> that's that's a good option. Um, I guess related to, to some of these issues, um, you, you you talk about kind of various ways that people uh, employ the term religion uh, in relation to ideas of kind of genus and species, um, the private versus public issues, uh, and what so what, what you you go through a critique of, of many of these, um, and then at the end of the the. First chapter, I believe. What what do we mean by religion? Um, you come up with uh, defenders, I guess, that say, do we do we really have to worry about this term? Uh, couldn't um, you know historical peoples still have religion even though they didn't use a term like this? Uh, could could you could you kind of respond to that argument?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, that I think that that's the sort of argument that makes me um, kind of put some of my cards on the table in terms of um, epistemology and just how I think historical knowledge works. Um, I I think in the book, I quote Ludwig Ludwig, uh, Wittgenstein uh, to the effect that when we study something historically, as when we study a concept, what we're really studying is the use of a word uh and i really think that that's as historians that's what we have access to and so if the words uh aren't there then as historians there's really not a lot that we can say about extra linguistic phenomena i think yeah
0: now um in the, in the second chapter, you, you talk about, uh, it's called loss in Translation, inserting religion into ancient texts. Um, and I guess the, the thrust of this chapter is the, this idea that modern scholars basically do their readers a disservice when they translate some of these terms, uh, these various terms, as religion. So I'm wondering, uh, you know, it's, it's somewhat obvious what is problematic about translating these terms um but, but maybe you could talk a little bit about uh you know why this is problematic, but but maybe also what are the consequences uh if people continue to do this, if they continue to translate various terms that don't necessarily mean religion as religion
1: uh I think that I mean the The problem for me is uh I guess summed up most easily with um the the notions of emic and edic, or uh, in the book I call them descriptive and redescriptive, uh, The idea that there are concepts or categories that are native to a given culture, uh, the emic concepts or the descriptive concepts. And then there are concepts that we as academics, as historians, use... Uh, to help us analyze uh, what we're studying, and those would be edict or redescriptive concepts. And <clears throat> the issue of translation is is an interesting one because, on the one hand, you're trying to bring into uh, your own language um, this ancient material, and so. By definition, you have to change it uh, to you have to translate it and turn it into something else. And so the question is, uh, when you're doing that, do you import modern conceptual uh, ideas as uh, as well as just simply words? I mean, it's a very tricky job. I don't envy translators uh, their task, but. In my mind, what you're trying to do with uh, a good translation is render comprehensible uh, the work of an ancient author, and I don't think that using uh, the word religion really brings to mind in a modern audience the kinds of things that an ancient author would be talking about.
0: So what then would be the the consequence, I guess, for... A modern audience, if 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 people are translating these these words as religion,
1: uh, I think it sort of short circuits um, an interpretive process. Um, it makes it makes translation too easy. Uh, part of the the fun for me of studying another culture is uh, allowing myself to view my own culture as strange allowing myself to be surprised uh and if we too readily um, use these familiar concepts to uh filter these ancient cultures i find that yeah we, we short circuit the interpretive process and we end up uh just making ancient texts into mirrors that Uh, really show us only ourselves and our own cultural institutions.
0: Now, in the, in the the remainder of this chapter, you, you look at a few terms from Latin, Greek, and Arabic. Um, And you note that, you know, you could do this exercise in a number of other languages, uh, Sanskrit, Chinese. Um, Could you, could you walk us through kind of how this happens, this idea of translating these terms that are uh, not necessarily, what we mean by the modern day conception of the word religion?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, there's just, there's a tension between, uh, what you read in translations of ancient texts and then what you read in terms of specialist treatments of, uh, the idea of religion in any of these ancient cultures. Um, I think I started out that chapter with a couple of examples of just sort of dictionary entries uh, about um, China and Mesoamerica, where you have specialists who are keyed in and focused in on uh, the difficulty of locating religion in these cultures. And you get these kind of long, intense discussions about how Religion just doesn't quite capture uh, this what the, how ancient people interacted with their gods in these different cultures, um, and there's a tension between that on the one hand, and then just the translations that we have of ancient texts on the other, where uh, the word religion is readily invoked, and on I think that that's. Uh, something that we need to focus our attention on, uh, particularly those of us who study antiquity, because I get the sense that pretty much every scholar, academic, or not every, but most, when pushed will say, sure, uh, you know, the ancient Romans didn't have uh, a concept of religion that maps on really well to what most modern people mean by that term. Uh, but in their everyday work, they continue to use it. And so, one of the things I want to do with this book is to really challenge people uh, to kind of call them on this practice and uh, see what kind of responses that that generates and it's especially interesting to me for something like uh, the early Muslim literature because that's not really a, an area of my specialty and so it would be really interesting for me to see the reactions of people who know this literature uh, really well and to see what, uh, what this particular question uh, would elicit from them.
0: I, th- I think uh, at least from Islamicists, uh, you, you do look at this word dean uh, rather extensively in the chapter, and I think most Islamicists would, would agree with your comments. Um, though, although, as you point out, uh, with with your uh, quotations, that a number of people still translate this word "dean" as religion, so uh, I think you would have a lot of support. Um, in in the in the uh, next few chapters, uh, or in the next chapter, you talk about um, this idea that well, we we need to. There must be a, a birth of this idea of religion at some point, right? If we have it today, there must have been a, a beginning, a starting point. Um, so the, throughout the chapter, you're, you're going through and basically showing that scholars claim that there there must be particular moments in antiquity that, that mark the birth of religion, uh, the way we, we generally understand it today. Um could could you 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 give us a number of examples here for uh these beginnings can can you kind of explain some of these early moments that people claim must be the beginning of religion the way we understand it today
1: sure uh i think that um the the earliest uh the earliest instance that i discuss in the book i believe is the the Maccabean revolt um this is an event that took place in the the second century BC uh, in Judea, um, some rival families in and around Jerusalem, uh, when that area was ruled by uh, the successors to Alexander the Great, uh, the occasionally the Ptolemies based in Egypt or the Seleucids uh, in Syria. Um, some Judeans in the middle of the second century BC uh, tried to establish autonomous rule. And we have a couple of primary source documents that describe uh, this uprising. In addition to the the historian Josephus, we have first and second Maccabees that are uh, apocryphal literature in the Bible. And the story in first and second Maccabees is of a kind of nativist, uprising and in second Maccabees uh, we get the term eudaismos frequently translated as Judaism uh, this is where it, it makes its appearance and it's quite interesting because uh, a number of scholars of ancient Judaism have said that this really is, is the moment where we see Judaism emerge as a religion uh, and <clears throat> But there have been a number of studies that have looked at uh, the Maccabean revolt as a historical phenomenon and also close word studies of uh, this word eudaismos. And what these studies have shown is that uh, on the one hand, the word eudaismos uh, isn't really so much Judaism as a system as it is Judaizing as a sort of verbal activity, uh, because when the term occurs in Second Maccabees, what it's describing is uh, a particular enthusiasm for uh, the ethnic customs of the Judeans. And the term really is is one of a field of terms that have to do with ethnicity. Uh, It's related to a verbal form, uh, uh to Judaize, to take up the customs of the Judean ethnicity. Uh, so what we have going on in the Maccabean revolt isn't really the birth of Judaism as a system so much as it is uh, a new way of a new kind of Greek Hellenized way of thinking about the Judean nation. So uh, that's one example. Another example that's been suggested as the uh, the birth of the concept of religion are the writings of the church historian Eusebius. So now we jump ahead to the fourth century uh, of the Common Era and Eusebius, a <coughs> uh, court historian for Constantine, um, Again, he uses this term as well, Eudaismos, but again, it's not quite doing uh, the work that the modern term Judaism does. (laughs) So in Eusebius, uh, you get a really fascinating look at the way that at least some Christians conceptualized uh, themselves. And again, this category of ethnicity is one that looms really large. So Eusebius, uh, in his writings, in an effort to uh, think about the map of the world, of the world's peoples, uh, he decides that, or he writes that, uh, the... Christian nation, and that's the word that he uses, ethnos. Uh, he speaks of Christians as an as an ethnic group, and he says that they're descended directly from the oldest ethnicity, the oldest race in the world, that is the Hebrews. And he defends this assertion in a really interesting way uh, when he cites from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures. <clears throat> he goes back to the Psalms, and he points out that in one of the Psalms, uh, the voice of God is heard to describe the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, so forth, uh, as anointed. And in the Greek, that word for anointed is Christoi, And so Eusebius says, so you see that uh, the patriarchs, uh, going back to Abraham, were Christioi, just like we're Christianoi, Christians. And so he traces uh, Christian ethnic lineage back to Abraham in that way. And so Eusebius' whole discourse of Christianity is like this, uh, it's shot through the language of ethnicity. So again, it's not really, uh, helpful I think to talk about, um, Christian religion in this period.
0: Yeah. The, uh, so in the following chapter, you, you kind of flip, flip the script here. So in the, in the earlier chapters, you're really focusing on um, how scholars have, have labeled these things as religion and why that's problematic. Um, so in, in the fourth chapter, you, you basically ask the question, I guess, um, how are ancient groups of people designating themselves in relation to, to others? Um, so what what kind of vocabularies are they using and means of conceptualizing uh the other how, how does this work um so how do christians interpret what we might think of as non-christians right
1: yeah uh, that's yeah the that chapter i wanted to uh um try to say something a little more positive you know the first half of the book there's a lot of saying uh well this isn't religion this doesn't really match up with the modern concept of religion it's it's you know a sort of uh a negative thrust and so with that chapter i wanted to see what sorts of uh what sorts of mappings we might be able to find um it's it's a a good pick me up at that moment in the book yeah (laughs) good uh yeah yeah i think with that uh with that chapter, the um, the example that I think is, is easily my favorite because it really surprised me the most was uh, John of Damascus and uh, the Christian groups that were um, interacting directly with uh, the early followers of Muhammad and the, the way that they went about classifying what, you know, we tend to classify as the, the birth of Islam, the birth of the religion of Islam um, through the eyes of uh, a Christian who was right there in the middle of things uh, early on. They appeared as a Christian heresy, as just a, a bad form of Christianity. And I found that really just intriguing.
0: Yeah. Could you, could you talk about these other examples as well? So, uh, so you're basically looking at uh i guess how how where we might want to start if we're thinking about uh what are non-christians if religion is this this uh basically christianized word at at root uh how how are christians employing it and you see that they they don't employ it at these moments right they're they're using different means of classifying um, could you talk a little bit about you talk also talk about the, the manicheans and about this book Uh, I'm going to probably butcher it. Barlam and Yosef?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, those were, uh, it's interesting. The, uh, Mani is a really, uh, an intriguing figure and, um, scholarship on Manichaeism is, is incredible. Uh, I have a world of respect for Manichaean scholars, uh, because it's such a challenging field, um, uh, followers of Mani uh, were found all over the late antique world, um, from the Mediterranean through to uh, the southeastern coast of China. And so there are Manichaean materials in this dizzying array of languages, uh, Syriac, Coptic, not Greek, Latin uh, Chinese languages, Uyghur, uh, Middle Persian. uh, There's just a huge amount of very diverse material. And uh, there are some really, really talented philologists that work through it. Uh, But the study of Manichaeism uh, is quite interesting because it's been a topic that has been of interest for uh, Christians since uh, the time of Mani, because it was originally regarded as uh, a schismatic kind of Christianity. Uh, In some of the writings that we have preserved of uh, Mani himself, we (coughs) have his self-identification as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So... Uh, Manicheans seem to think of themselves as uh, as Christians and early Christians viewed them as Christians as well just as heretical Christians or bad Christians uh, <clears throat> so there we have um, pretty good evidence both internal to the group and also external from people who are hostile to the group that they identified as Christians. And uh, nevertheless, we often see Mani invoked because his followers had such a wide geographic spread. uh, We see Mani called uh, the founder of the, the first world religion. And again, I just want to sort of draw attention to that kind of vocabulary and raise some questions, because we have these primary sources that identify Mani and his followers as Christians, and yet we still call it this uh, distinct world religion, and so part of what I li- would like to do here is kind of draw uh, the scholars of antiquity who use this kind of language, draw them into these discussions that are going on more widely in religious studies. Uh, most obviously, like the work of Tomoko Masazawa, who is deeply problematized, uh, this notion of world religions.
0: Now the, uh, I guess the, the second, you can almost see this as a second half of the book. You, uh, you really kind of trace where we get, uh, this kind of a, a everyday use of the, the idea of religion, um, so in in the the next chapter you uh, called Renaissance Reformation and Religion in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries um, you're you're really pointing at to what what I guess you would say where this re, uh, religion secular division or this religion non religion division is beginning to to start um, and you 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 kind of uh, give us a little preview uh, by kind of saying that the, these major factors contributing this are uh, Christian disunity, um, uh, colonial encounters, and then the formation of the nation state. Um, in this chapter though, you focus primarily on, um, uh, partly on Christian disunity. Um, and then on the, in the second half of the chapter on this, this idea of the state formation and the rise of, uh, religion as we think of today. Um, can you, can, can you kind of give us the background of what's going on here? What, what is this, uh, disunity that you're talking about and how would this affect our understanding of, uh, religion as we think of it today.
1: Yeah. Um, the, the division I'm talking about, uh, is primarily, uh, the reformation. Um, I mean, we sometimes oversimplify and say that there was a sort of unitary Catholic church and then, uh, the reformation happened. then you had this kind of splintering of, um, of, Christianity, of Christendom. But uh, in reality, if you look at the sources, I mean, there never was really a, a totally unified Christianity. Um, there were always, a, there was always a struggle for identity among Christians uh, from the earliest movement that we can call a Christianity up through the time of the Reformation. What makes the Re- Reformation different, I think, is that, the people who were dissenting from uh, the, the Catholic Church at that time had enough uh, material backing to make their their theological ideas matter. And so, whereas uh, maybe in the Middle Ages, the idea of uh, of Christianity as as a kind of system of salvation. Existed, uh, but salvation was simply being within uh, the legitimate body of the church, the body of Christ. Uh, with the Reformation, all of a sudden, you, uh, you have different churches. And then this question of salvation becomes much more difficult because you <clears throat> all of a sudden, if salvation is within the church, the question is, well, Which church, uh, when you start to have these multiple different ecclesial claims to authority. So, that's one thing that's happening is a kind of a really materially evident fragmentation of Christendom. Uh, But it's happening simultaneously with other developments, Uh, most importantly, the kind of colonial expansion of Europe. Uh, The interaction with previously unknown people uh, in all directions, Um, the Americas, Africa, India, China, uh, there's an explosion of new data and there's a a kind of cross fertilization, I think, in these uh, these events where you can see in some of the literature that different kinds of comparisons are, are made with the encounters with new people, uh, trying to assimilate all of this new data. One of the tools for that assimilation, uh, is comparison. And so what you often find are, uh, people corresponding back and forth, uh, Missionaries, colonial agents, uh, back to um, Europe, and the way that they describe these new peoples often invokes uh, comparisons with different types of Christians or with um, Jews, and so you find that these new fissures in within Christianity in Europe are kind of mapped onto uh, new peoples. And as knowledge about these new peoples is created, uh, it's created in a mirror image of this newly fragmented uh, European Christendom. And I think that that's something that's really generative for uh, thinking about the beginnings of uh, the idea of multiple religions and of religion as its own distinct conceptual field
0: now uh, one, of, one of the kind of major uh, factors here in this disunity between Christian groups is that this term religio becomes used um, as one among many, many correct there, so we have a, a multitude of religions so to speak but uh, there's not this religion secular divide yet uh, I think is one of the main points you're you're trying to get at in this chapter. Um, the other half of this chapter you you focus on uh, kind of the rise of the state um, as a corollary to the the formation of religion here, and you you bring in um, John Locke and Jean Baudin. I'm wondering if you could tell us why why you're bringing these two figures in here.
1: Uh, yeah, they're. <clears throat> I think that in addition to um, the uh, the Reformation colonial exploration, uh, the formation of the nation state is another kind of key ingredient uh, in this development that we've been tracing. And Bowdoin and Locke are both, uh, I found really uh, articulate examples of a certain kind of, Thinking that was beginning to isolate uh, the the conceptual field that we call religion, uh, they were beginning to isolate that from other concepts. Uh, you see it especially clearly in uh, in Locke, but um, in John Bodin, uh, what you get is this fascinating discussion of. Uh, what we would now say, uh, the problem of pluralism, um, but for Boden, it's all about establishing uh, a stable commonwealth, and he says the best way to have a stable commonwealth is if everyone agrees in their opinions about God, uh, then that produces uh, the most stability. But, he says, if that's not a realistic goal, then what you should have instead is a situation where uh, disputes about God don't interfere with other affairs of the commonwealth. And he points to um, who he calls the emperor of the Turks as a good example and says, if you look over uh, at the, uh, the Turkish Empire, then you'll see that uh, although um, there's a single Muslim commonwealth, you still have Christians and Jews uh, in those geographic areas, but they're tolerated Uh, the the theological differences that might exist don't lead to any kind of material conflict. Now that's an idealized picture, of course, but uh, it's an informative one as well because it starts to, you can see looking back from our own position, the beginnings of a kind of theorization of religion as uh, being defined as something that doesn't interfere with the affairs of state. You see the beginnings of a division between uh, what we would call religion and politics. And I think you get this articulated even more clearly in, uh, in Locke's letter concerning toleration. Um, This idea that uh, disputes about beliefs about God should be, a matter of uh, the individual rather than um, a public matter. And so just as we begin to get this divide between uh, the public sphere and the private sphere, uh, the division between religion and politics or so the creation of the, the space that we call secular, uh, all of this seems to be emerging uh, at about this time in this circumstance of the birth of the nation state. But I mean, it's all tied together because, uh, what makes Locke such an interesting figure is that he's doing all of this theorizing, uh, as someone who is directly involved in the colonial administration of, uh, the, uh, American colonies. So it really is that the nexus of these, uh, different occurrences at this time, the, uh, the Reformation, the colonial expansion, and the birth of a nation-state.
0: Uh, yes, and in the next chapter, the uh, New Worlds, New Religions, World Religions, you focus more on uh, what's happening during these uh, European encounters with indigenous people and how this kind of further uh, solidifies the articulation of a, a genus-species model of religion. Um, and you go through, you give us a couple of examples of what's happening in in South Africa and Japan, and in India. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, what's happening in, you know in these encounters and and how are Europeans beginning to classify all these various, you know quote religions that they're encountering?
1: yeah, this uh, this chapter, I, I was really heavily influenced by uh, the work of David Chittister, uh which I read in graduate school. Uh, his savage systems, his book on uh, the the use of the concept of religion uh, in colonial south africa i I just found that to be an incredibly groundbreaking book, amazing work, and it really drove home for me the importance of not focusing entirely on uh, europe and european thinkers uh as we sometimes do and we're approaching this question because you know we say religion is a uniquely modern and a uniquely western phenomenon um and of course there's an extent to which that's uh that's true but the the contours of this concept were really hammered out uh in many ways on these colonial frontiers and in these colonial encounters And so uh, I wanted to try to to find some good examples of of that kind of creation of the, these modern uh, world religions uh, in the colonial interactions themselves and not just uh, in European theorizing.
0: um, in this chapter you kind of take us through uh, various ways people kind of broke up the religions Um, and uh, I I, I was hoping you could kind of walk us through some of these transitions and some of the the possibilities Um, today we kind of just assume that there's world religions possibly but there was other possibilities um, that people were putting forth as ways of classifying different religions and you talk about kind of a a four uh grouping uh classification system universal versus national religions ethical primitive or native religions uh, and then ultimately we we come to this world religions model could could you tell us kind of a little bit about what are these various t- ways of classifying and and how ultimately we ended up with a world religions model
1: uh yeah the the, the fourfold classification that you mentioned um, is really the one that uh, emerged as the sort of leading way of understanding the world, uh, the divisions of the world's people in Europe coming out of the Middle Ages. But it's uh, yeah, a classification of peoples that is it was the Christian people, uh, Muslims, Jews, and heathen. Uh, it's kind of catch-all other category. Um, but, you know, we tend to think of that as uh, as a classification of four religions, but one of the things that I think is established uh, in earlier parts of the book is that from a Christian standpoint, those those groupings are really more along the lines of Orthodox Christians and various different types of Malformed Christians uh, that you know so if you go back to the heresiologist uh, John of Damascus and so forth, you see that um, you know, groups that we would call Muslims were conceptualized of as Christian heresy, and because of the way that uh, Eusebius frames. Um, that discussion of Christian ethnicity, it can become clear why a lot of these lists of heresies also included Jews. So for a number of important Christian thinkers, uh, Jews were not a different religion, but rather a a Christian heresy. It's so counterintuitive to to us now to think that way. Uh, But that was a kind of classificatory scheme that a number of Christian thinkers held. And so, this fourfold classification um, was an extremely powerful uh, conceptual tool. But as you have this uh, these encounters with new peoples, um, one of the ways of handling the data was to try to fit this new data into that fourfold model. And so, you find a lot of. Uh, Questioning about newly discovered people in the Americas trying to fit them into uh, this mold by saying, well, maybe these are the, the lost tribes of Israel, uh, so maybe they fit into the, the Jewish category. But uh, new forms of classification also arose, uh, like the ones you mentioned. Um, some people began to propose divisions between uh, universal religions or um, uh, ethnic religions. Um, So the universal religions would be those that uh, seem to encompass more than one ethnic group. And so here you can see we've fully made that transition into thinking of uh, religion and ethnicity as distinct entities so that one religion might uh, encompass more than one uh, distinct ethnicity. Uh, as to the question of why is it that the, the model of world religions um, became so dominant, uh, it's hard to say. Here I would, uh, I would have to defer to, uh, to Tomoko Masazawa's book. Um, the invention of world religions. Uh, she really digs deeply into the 19th century when that model uh, kind of exploded onto the scene and became dominant uh, by the the middle part of the 20th century.
0: Um, so moving on to the next chapter, uh, the modern origins of ancient religions. You explain how the, the modern understanding of this word religion has been seen as, as natural and universal and ultimately necessary. Um, but, but you talk about this, I guess, in the same way that others have, that it's a, this is an invention, right? So you give us a couple of examples. Um, so maybe, maybe perhaps you could talk about how when people are writing about antiquity and they're writing about uh, beliefs and social activity of ancient people – um by inserting this term religion we're in fact inventing it so you you give us this example of mesopotamia um could could you kind of walk us through that
1: yeah uh this this chapter was um, a, a real pleasure to uh, to research and write uh, I learned a huge amount in this process um so I, I start off the chapter talking about uh, Ancient Greek and Roman religion, uh all of that in um, scare quotes, because what I try to describe in the chapter is the development of the study of something called ancient Greek and ancient Roman religion, uh as a as a unique discipline. Um Again, this is a very sort of counterintuitive uh, move because it's just so natural to think of ancient Greek and Roman religion. But what I try to point out is that uh, if we go back through uh, late antique authors, early medieval authors, we find there's always reflection on the the Greek gods, the Roman gods, you know, they never disappeared. It's just that uh, when Christian writers talked about them, for the most part, they viewed them as uh, demons, as uh, diabolical agents. And that didn't really change until this period of, uh, of colonial exploration, again, uh, when Europeans were abroad and encountering these different people, one of their tools for understanding them was to uh, make comparisons between their practices and the practices of uh, ancient Greeks and Romans, um, especially cultic practices, because, you know, these Europeans had had uh, decent classical educations and so uh, Stories about the gods were part of their uh, conceptual vocabulary—the Greek and Roman gods—and so, as they encountered these new peoples and their with their kind of exotic, from their perspective, exotic uh, rites and rituals, they generated comparisons with uh, what they knew from ancient Greek and Latin texts, and one of the results was a kind of rebirth of the idea of uh, Greek and Roman gods as kind of real options for ancient people rather than uh, simply as demons in a Christian system. And so I tried to trace through then how this develops into uh, the, the study of something called ancient Greek and Roman religion. Uh, so that's of a special case because those uh, figures the the olympian gods and the roman gods never really uh, disappeared from european culture now it's different with the case of what we call mesopotamian religion uh, because most of the data for um, this field is relatively new that is to say it's a product of uh, mostly the 19th and 20th centuries uh, in terms of the gathering of actual cuneiform texts uh, and certainly the reading of those texts. So with uh, the study of Mesopotamia, we really have a, a good example of how ancient evidence uh, can be interpreted according to fashionable ideas about religion. So. As these, uh, as these new um, cuneiform texts came to light, uh, they were fit into a kind of preconceived mold of Babylonian religion. Uh, because a lot of the, uh, the early catalogs of um, different kinds of religions, we start to get this vocabulary uh, in some 16th century works. Uh, they would also include, in addition to um, the religion of the Banians, that is, uh, the religion of India, the religion of China. They would also have the religion of the Babylonians, usually uh, inspired by um, biblical texts. But there was no real data for this in the way that uh, they had some data for these other groups. And so they had sort of a blank spot for this Babylonian religion, but the discovery of these cuneiform texts uh, allowed that picture to be filled out in a number of ways. And this was uh, accomplished by uh, Largely by British scholars, um, there's. I relate the uh, the story of um, the. Sorry, lost my train of thought. No problem. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, I relate the story of the deciphering of cuneiform tablets and the way that uh, different tablets were uh, simply classified as being history or being religion, and that the story of Mesopotamian religion uh, was kind of written within these strictures. And we can see that, uh, that story changing as ideas about what constitutes religion change. And so in the early 20th century, uh, when um, we get the really influential work of Rudolf Otto, who uh, sees religion as being about a uh, numinous experience, a human response to a kind of universal numinous experience, uh, we can also see a shift then in the way that this entity called Mesopotamian religion... Uh, which had been, you know, the contents of books with that title had been sets of uh, of <clears throat> rituals and practices. Um, but with Otto's work, we see a shift and Mesopotamian religion becomes about uh, these experiences of the numinous and about feelings. Uh, so it takes a, a kind of romantic turn and... <clears throat> I find this really helpful for thinking about uh, the way that we study ancient religions because it really is uh, an effect of our particular modern interests and what we uh, tend to think of as religion at any given moment, um, which changes uh, on a fairly regular basis.
0: Yeah, and uh, you do you do a very good job of kind of laying this out in the book. I I think, uh, especially people that are getting kind of introduced to, to what's what's at stake in, in studying religion, I think will really benefit from it. So, uh, in light of kind of what this book is all about and and what our conversation has been about, uh, where where do we go? How can we move forward? Uh, is there any utility in the word religion in employing it? Uh, to, to study, you know, human societies, where, where do we go? Uh,
1: I think we go in a couple of directions. Um, on the one hand, I really think it is a great exercise, uh, for anyone studying antiquity and for anyone, you know, translating ancient texts, working with ancient texts when they encounter a word that, uh, is, sometimes translated as religion or as you know is listed in the dictionary or the lexicon its principal uh, translation is religion i think it's really worthwhile to just bracket that and to try and see in context uh you know what what is this word doing and are there other words that might um be better translations and just performing the experiment, you know, how would it work to translate this term as law or tradition or you know, any number of other words that may more accurately cover the field of a given ancient term? So I think that it's really, uh, on the one hand, an exercise in just trying to expand the possibilities for thinking about the ways that humans and gods interacted in antiquity. Uh, the second way ahead, I think, is to take really seriously this idea of descriptive and redescriptive concepts. The idea that uh, you know we have a kind of set of modern words and tools that we use to talk about the ancient world, uh, you know, culture, society, religion, and if we really own those as our own modern concepts, then I think that we can use them to analyze the ancient world. You know, We could talk about something called Roman religion, uh, but I think what's really, really important and what needs to be stressed consistently and constantly when we do that is that Roman religion is – our construct. You know, it's a result of our particular set of interests. We're bringing together ancient data uh, to satisfy our idea of what religion is. And in some cases, that might be a really useful exercise. uh, Because there's a lot of people, there's debates in the field about the utility of the concept of religion. And a number of people uh, argue that it's just we shouldn't be using it at all. Not only shouldn't should students of antiquity not be using it, but anyone working in the field of religious studies shouldn't be using the term at all. And you know, on the one hand, uh, I'm sympathetic to that because uh, it's it's a fairly straightforward solution uh, to the problem of this difficult term. But on the other hand, I don't really think that that's how. Language works. Uh, I don't think we can control usage that way. Uh, so, what I really advocate for is a, a more self-conscious usage of the term uh, and a much more careful usage of it. Because I really don't think it's it's possible to kind of stamp out uh, religion as a conceptual category. I mean, it's such an ingrained part of the modern world and part of the way that so many humans self-identify, uh, that it seems unrealistic for me to, to jettison that from our, uh, conceptual toolbox. But I think we can be a lot more critical of the way that we use the term. Well, I, I would agree with you. Uh, and, and Brent,
0: this is a, this is a wonderful book. I really do hope, uh, I really think everyone who's studying religion should should read this book. Um, before before we let you kind of loose here, um, could could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Things that that might be coming coming to us in the future.
1: Uh, yeah. Um, I've kind of taken a, a different track here for the last uh, couple of years. Um, I'm sort of back at my roots with early Christianity, but uh, I've been working on early Christian manuscripts. Uh, I've got a a postdoctoral fellowship here at Macquarie University uh, in Sydney, and I've been studying um, the dates of early Christian manuscripts is how I got started with this. Uh, One of the, the issues with the study of early Christian manuscripts, so manuscripts of the New Testament and of other non-canonical literature. Uh, None of these manuscripts from the the earliest period uh, have dates in them. Like Some later medieval manuscripts will have uh, colophons. The scribe will tell you that he wrote this in such and such year. Uh, With these earlier manuscripts, uh, we don't have those secure dates, and so uh, in most instances, we rely on the analysis of handwriting. And so I've been really trying to uh, look critically at the way that, that uh, this dating process has been carried out, because uh, what I've been finding is that in many instances, we can't really date these uh, early Christian manuscripts as precisely as they're sometimes dated. Uh, on the basis of handwriting so i've been trying to um improve the way that we uh we talk about the dates of these manuscripts and think of how about that how that affects the um way that we describe the transmission of early christian literature and the formation of uh, early christian libraries so it's a it's a a different set of problems from uh, what's going on in before religion, but there's, there's some overlap, there's some relationships. I mean, one of the things I'm constantly fighting against uh, in my current project is the imposition of modern concepts of handwriting styles, uh, that the idea that uh, the sorts of styles of handwriting that we find in these uh, ancient manuscripts might be uh, our modern names for them uh, might have actually been ancient classification systems too when we have no evidence for that. So it's in some ways, it's it's uh, dealing with some of the same issues using our modern conceptual categories uh, in a way that's not really critical. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Uh, good luck with that, Brent.
0: And uh, thank you again for, for talking with me today. Thanks for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to New Books in Religion. That was my conversation with Brent Nogary about his book, Before Religion, A History of a Modern Concept, published with Yale University Press in 2013. Thanks again.